All right, Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week, we learned of the plan. And this whole thing is kind of set up by Naomi in order to get Ruth a new husband. That's the whole goal of this. And since we have a lot to cover, as I'm sure you're like, oh my goodness, this is going on forever. um, Let's go ahead and start it up. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. At this point in the story, we learn what Ruth does. First, she goes down to the threshing floor. As was stated last week, it is likely that the threshing floor was located outside of the town, which was on a hill surrounded by a wall. By going down, it implies that the threshing floor is located outside of the town and literally down the hillside. We also learn that she does not just as Naomi commanded. This is a reminder of Ruth's obedience to Naomi. She continues to obey and follow Naomi's commands, whether it be staying close to Boaz's women, which we now find out the reason why, um, or what we see here with her doing going down to Boaz now. In this case, she follows what Naomi had commanded in washing, anointing, dressing, and going to the threshing floor to wait and to watch Boaz. We then go to verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Ruth waits just as Naomi requested her to. One can imagine that it would be quite nerve-wracking to wait until all that was necessary transpired. But... Ruth holds to what she was commanded to do. She waits until Boaz had eaten and drunk and that his heart was merry. It should be of note that his heart was likely merry from the work which was accomplished. And as we all likely have experienced a meal well deserved after such a hard day of work. Along with this is a sense of contentment. God has provided a season of harvest. And Boaz is recognizing God's blessing. Likewise... There is no indication that Boaz is inebriated from the meal. I just want to get that out there. Though the drink would have been probably alcoholic. We then learn that he lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Normally, the grain would be put in a pile in the middle of the floor. Um, So it seems likely that this is from Ruth's perspective. He is lying down on the opposite side of the heap grain from where Ruth is watching. Upon seeing where he lay down, Ruth goes and softly uncovers his feet and then lays down. As we saw last week, there is a possibility of some sensuality going on here. But 
It likely means that she merely uncovered his feet, maybe up to his thighs. There is little indication in the text that any physical activity is occurring. After doing this, we learn Ruth lays down next to Boaz. And we're going to see more about that in a little bit. Now verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. As the story progresses, Boaz is startled at midnight. Usually this word indicates fright, but in this context it seems more likely to mean that because his feet and his legs were uncovered, he was aware of the chill of the night, which startled him awake. The likeliest reason for him turning over then is to search for his blanket or his cloak. He altogether did not expect to find what he found, though. Um, Instead of his cloak or his blanket, he found a woman lying at his feet. The shock is seen by the narrator um, saying what the ESV translate as, Behold, um, Boaz was not expecting this nightly visit at all. Like last week, we may wonder how this is all going to turn out. This is the time of the judges period, as we remember, where immorality was rampant. Will Boaz see this as an opportunity for sensual behavior? We are left in suspense until the next verse. Verse 9, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz immediately questioned who this person is. This is, in a way, um, reflects the first question he asked his foreman when he arrived in the field in chapter 2, when he first saw Ruth. He asked, who does this woman belong to? Now the question isn't so much of who she belongs to, but who is she personally? Who are you? Um, Now, the first half of Ruth's response is interesting but fairly usual. First, she says, I am Ruth. We notice right away that there is no mention of Ruth being a Moabite, nor is there mention of her being the widow of Malon. She doesn't even say, I am Ruth, who returned with Naomi. Instead, she simply says, I am Ruth. Uh, She also says, your servant. This is actually a step up from what she said in chapter 2. There we notice she says, I am not one of your servants. There the word translated as servant meant the lowest person on the social ladder. Now the term translated as servant is actually different. And we talked about this in Sunday school (laughs) where we have words that mean different things, but we just kind of translate them as such. Um, Though it still means servant, this kind of servant may be eligible for marriage. So there's a difference. It's at this point we have the fascinating statement from Ruth. She requests, and some commentators say she even demands, that he spread his wings over her. It is interesting for her, the woman, to say this. But at the same time, it may be a way for her to emphasize she is no longer in the grieving stage of her late husband and is informing him that he can do this. We get this especially with her statement, spread your wings over your servant. Now, I know you could take that in a few different ways, but we're going to talk about what it means. This terminology, while strange to us, indicates that she is requesting marriage with Boaz. It also reflects back onto the previous chapter, where Boaz reflects that she is under Yahweh's wings. Now, Ruth is indicating that he can also fulfill this in her life by spreading his own personal wings over her in marriage. What is, the, what is the reason he can do this, is what we're asking. And the reason is because he is a redeemer, and that's what she says. This statement is interesting because it does not add to the question, answer of his question, which was, who are you? Instead, the focus is now put on Boaz and who he is. It is because he is a redeemer that this is possible. Likewise, it is interesting how Ruth the Moabite is asking for this. It seems she acknowledged that this is truly her people and desires to be 
treated as such. We then come to verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. Now, one of the reasons why I agree with Block concerning what is happening here is this response from Boaz. Let's assume that Ruth had gone, as some commentators suggest, for sexual favors or to present herself in such a way to influence him sensually. Boaz is a worthy man, and he would not say this to her if that was the case. Instead, he seems to recognize why she is there, and it is not for that reason, but to seek him to spread his wings over her. So he invokes Yahweh to bless her. He also uses the endearing, my daughter. Boaz, like Naomi, has seen what Ruth has done, and as we saw in the last chapter, sees her as a true member of the tribe of Judah. Because of this, and what she has done, he wishes a blessing upon her. But the question is, why this blessing? He answers this himself by informing us and her that she has made this kindness greater than the first. The word translated as kindness here is a word that we have looked over often, and that is hesed. As we recall, the first hesed he recognized was when she left her family and her homeland to travel to Judah with Naomi. Now we wonder, all right, what is this last hesed? What is the hesed she just did? In reality, we do not see anything that is comparable But Boaz does. He informs us of the last kindness by saying that it stems from her not going after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, because she did not seek the attention of a younger man. This would mean that she is seeking to marry for esteem being married to a younger man. Likewise, she did not seek one who was poor or rich. The idea of poor represents seeking marriage for passionate love. But... She also did not seek riches either. Yet we are left wondering if her choosing him over them is all he thinks of when he expressed this as hesed. The answer is probably not. Instead, it is likelier a reflection of the last word she said, which is that he is a redeemer. By using this word, Boaz recognizes that Ruth is not only seeking marriage, but also redemption. Likewise, by using Redeemer, it implies that she seeks to marry him for something more, and that is familial reasons. Familial reasons. Now, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. At this point, we can be sure that Ruth's heart must be racing rather quickly. Everything that he has said so far is good news to her. He recognizes her hesed and invokes Yahweh to bless her. Fascinating that Yahweh has already begun to answer the first blessing that Boaz invoked on her in chapter 2 through what Boaz is doing now. Again, Boaz calls her daughter. This is still an endearing statement. Along with the statement, do not fear, it indicates that he is trying to comfort her. He is showing her his own hesed again by being kind and gracious to her in this moment of absolute uncertainty. He is also bringing the reflection out of the past and into the present and the future. Will he do what has been requested or some say demanded of him? The answer is yes. He declares that he will do all that you ask. This is interesting to consider since Ruth just recently stated that she was his maidservant. Now the master is going to serve the servant. Again, 
This turn of events is extraordinary as we reflect on this Moabite widow. So why will he do these things? Because everyone in Bethlehem knows that she is a worthy woman. It again is fascinating to see this kind of language used. Previously in chapter 2, this concept of worth was used to describe Boaz. Now we learn that Boaz and all of Bethlehem holds Ruth in such a worthy manner as well. Even though she had come into Bethlehem as the lowest on the social ladder, now because of her character, she is considered worthy. This came not because she sought to influence the right people, but because she followed her mother-in-law and sought to take care of her during this time. It is because of this, Ruth is considered of the same status of Boaz by Boaz. We then come to verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet... There is a redeemer nearer than I. Yet, yet, there is a catch. While it is true that he is a redeemer, there is a redeemer nearer relation to Ruth than he is. Boaz could have left this part out. (laughs) But because he is a worthy man, he acknowledges that he is not the closest of relatives and therefore is not the first in line to be the redeemer. It is unknown whether this is an uncle or some other next of kin, and who it is that this man is. But there is the yet. So we come to verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Despite the heartbreaking news from the previous verse, Boaz gives her some peace and grace. He urges her to remain during the night. The word for remain indicates lodging, which means that Boaz will not be taking advantage of her despite the circumstances. Also, it would be unsafe for Ruth to return during the morning hours alone to her house. And there is always the possibility that if someone were to see her walking around in the midnight hour, that her character and her reputation might be ruined on this unfortunate assumption. Then we learn that Boaz plans to act immediately in the morning. He will do the right thing legally in going to the person who is near Redeemer. The focus of this is on redemption. The word redeemed is used three times in this verse alone. He notices that it will be good for the closer kinsman to redeem her. But if he is not going to redeem, then Boaz will redeem. In the end, redemption will come to Ruth. Boaz is so determined in all the matter that he actually makes an oath right in the midst of this with what the ESV translates as, as the Lord lives. Boaz is willing to take an oath that he will marry her and redeem her, assuming that the other man does not. For now, there is nothing left for Ruth to do but to lie down and get some rest. We now come to the main point. And the main point of this section is to show what happens during the night at the threshing floor. Ruth does what Naomi desires, and Boaz fulfills the role that was hoped for. He does not take advantage of Ruth, but instead offers to do whatever he can in order to make what is requested come to pass. Likewise, we notice that there is no mention of progeny, no mention of Elimelech or his sons at all during this chapter. The focus instead is on Naomi's goal, to get Ruth a new husband, peace, and security. And Boaz is the man for the job. And Ruth, out of loyalty to family above all else, seeks Boaz in this manner. Now, this leads us to our application points. The first one is providence, like you didn't see that coming. There are a number of themes found throughout the book of Ruth interwoven in this scene. 
One of those is providence. Throughout the book of Ruth, we have seen the providence of God in the background of the story. This scene is no different as we consider a few things which take place in this chapter. First, when we consider Boaz's response. The truth is, Boaz could have easily shooed Ruth away, assuming her to be there for all the wrong reasons. If anything, this would have been the most likely response to what was occurring. Instead, Boaz does not shoo her away on first assumptions, but recognizes what is taking place and accepts what is happening. His response is, when we consider it, an act of providence. Sometimes we assume that providence means God doing something miraculous without human intervention. Yet the truth is, God uses us to fulfill his will in the world. We are vessels of his glory. When we act upon the will of the Holy Spirit, which urges us to, let's say, pray for someone, and then we do it, or when it urges us, or when he urges us, to give to someone, even the way we speak to someone may be used by God to fulfill his providence. The way Boaz reacts is itself an act of providence, not reacting on first instinct, but taking in what is happening and responding to the situation before him. Consider that next time you're involved in a discussion with someone, um, how your responses could be used to glorify God and bless the other person you are talking to. Perhaps God is providentially using you to speak a word of encouragement to someone who is in desperate need of a good word. Now the second... This immediately causes us to think of the previous chapter. There we see Boaz blessing Ruth and invoking Yahweh's name that he would bless her as well. It is further evidence of providence in this chapter when we see that prayer being answered. And it is fascinating that this prayer would be answered by God through the one who prayed it, and that is Boaz. Again, accepting divine providence is not to deny human agency. Instead, we praise the God who provides for us by his own hand through individuals. These individuals may be Christians, but at the same time, God is not only the God of some, but all, whether it is acknowledged or not. Hence, his providence can be seen from the grocer, or the lawyer, the doctor, the politician, the homemaker. God shows his providence by using individuals to bless us. Third, We find it again when we consider how Boaz tells Ruth that she is now under Yahweh's wings. Now, Ruth requests to be under Boaz's wings. There is a significant correlation here, especially when we consider Boaz being an image-bearer of God. Because he is an image-bearer of God, it is possible for him to place his wings over Ruth in a similar, similar way to what God has done. Granted, God's wings are greater and more secure than any individual human. However, the simple truth is Boaz is able to spread his wings over Ruth to provide her peace and, just as importantly, rest. Boaz is certainly not God, but it is evident that he is providing similar characteristics as God by being able to provide for Ruth. In all of these things, we end up seeing the providence of God. As we have seen time and again, he has taken Ruth and Naomi, the widow and the bitter old woman, and turned their fortunes around. He did not stop doing this at the end of chapter 2, but continues to do it, continues to show his providence, his mercy, and his grace. What makes this real for us is that it does not end with the book of Ruth. And these few pages within the scriptures, the providence of God is also seen in our own lives. We all have that have had experienced others who have come unexpectedly in times of need, fulfilling the providence of God in our lives. 
We have all experienced God's provision in some way. And maybe without ever taking it into consideration, we have all been used by God in his providence towards others that we have helped in times of need. This is all something which has been seen repeatedly through Ruth, and it is something that we should continue to seek in our own lives and to praise God for. He continues to provide for us, and most amazingly, uses us for his glory to provide for others. This is truly something worthy to glorify God over and give praise upon praise. Never stop seeking this providence and continue to glorify God who blesses us and who uses us to bless others for his holy name. Now, the second point is redemption. This is another theme that we have seen um, in this chapter and in the book as a whole. We notice this in two places, though. The first is when Ruth desires Boaz to fulfill his role as kinsman redeemer. The second is from Boaz, who focuses on Ruth being redeemed by either the closer redeemer or himself. Ultimately, the theme of redemption is significant in this discussion between the two. In truth, it should not be terribly surprising to see it occur here. Within the last few weeks, we have already seen how Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Likewise, we have understood what it means for him to bring redemption. It is also unsurprising when we consider it from the beginning, when we first learn of the circumstances concerning the famine and the deaths of the men. For the women who are left, we have already had this in the back of our heads. When, where, and how will redemption come? Now that we're here, we are staring at the face of redemption, and that is reflected in the face of Boaz. He is the one who Ruth and Naomi want to bring redemption. He is the one who is worthy and has shown his worth toward the women. He has even made it even more known by how he is handling this situation, by not going around the judicial system, but acknowledging that they should go through the proper channels, even if it means he himself is not the redeemer per se. Yet even if this is the case, even if he is not the one who is personally the Redeemer, he still is the one who makes the motions necessary for redemption to take place. He is the one who is going to fulfill the request Ruth has made to him this evening. Even if he is not the Redeemer, it will be by him that redemption will still begin and come about. Really, this is the last step of redemption for the women. They have already been redeemed from the famine. They have already been fed by the very hand of Boaz. God has caused that famine to come to an end. Now this final act of redemption is about to take place by providing Ruth rest with a new husband. And as I say that, I'm realizing that's not true. This is the second to last. Sorry about that. (laughs) As we have seen previously, this applies to us as well. First, it applies in the sense that we are to be redeemers for each other. As a church family, we are to look after one another in certain ways, whether it is providing for each other when in need or giving encouragement in times of spiritual famine. Likewise, when it comes to being each other's brother's keeper, watching out for one another so that when one struggles with sin, being a means of redemption away from sin. This does not mean that we can personally redeem each other from sin in the way that Christ does. Only Christ can bring absolute, absolute redemption from sin by his blood. But there is a sense in which we can portray this redemption with how we act toward one another. That is what we are seeing here with this kinsman redeemer. 
They bring redemption in regards to family and land. And this kind of redemption is an echo of the redemption we find in Christ. When we echo the redemption of God for each other, then it should remind us of God's redemption. We can recognize that God is bringing about his redemption through us for each other. Just as he is the only one who can redeem us from sin, he uses us to proclaim the gospel which redeems. So it is with redemption. He uses us for these different redemptions, his redemptions. Now, I know some people will hear this and think, oh, shucks, what about us? Does God have to take all the good? I mean, I am an individual after all. What about me? What glory is mine? To this I say, the greatest thing for us is not when our lives reflect our own glory, but when we glorify God through our lives. In sin, it is most natural for us to glorify ourselves and to prop up our own doings as worthy. The truth is, anything apart from that which glorifies God is worthless. Yet all, the glorif- all that glorifies God is priceless and eternal and beyond measure. So when we seek to redeem each other, let's remember that it is merely a reflection of the great redemption we find in Christ. That though we are used by God to bring redemptions, they are really his redemptions through us. And he is glorified when he uses us as vessels for his glory. The glory of God is eternal. It will never fade. If we are to be filled, then let us be filled with the glory of God displayed in our lives. Now, the third point, worth. While this is not necessarily a theme that we have seen throughout the book of Ruth, we do come across it here and in the previous chapter. In chapter 2, we learn of the worth of Boaz. That is, Boaz is a man who has distinguishing characteristics, including esteem, and there is another element added when we consider his faith in Yahweh. He is truly devout. In these verses, we learn that Boaz, who is considered worthy, considers Ruth herself to be worthy. As was noted previously, this is a fascinating turnaround for Ruth. She enters into Bethlehem only as a Moabite widow and daughter-in-law of Naomi. Her prestige, however, begins to reveal itself when others learn of her allegiance to Naomi and her hard work ethic in the fields, and therefore the tribe of Judah. The Bethlehemites see her as enacting great hesed toward Naomi. In a remarkable turn of events, then, this woman, who would normally be hated because she is ethnically an enemy of the tribe of Judah, ends up exemplifying the ideal for the tribes themselves, and that is through hesed. This hesed, which Ruth has given to Naomi, has proven to the tribe that she is worthy to be one of the tribe. This is how significant it is for Ruth to be showing Hesed, as it is the evidence enough for the people that she is worthy. It is interesting to consider this worth. We notice that the worth that one has in the community is based upon their actions, their lifestyles. The greatest ethic in the culture at the time for the Jews was to show Hesed. Therefore, to show Hesed was to grow in esteem, to be considered worthy. Now, some may wonder about this. I mean, we learn in the scriptures that from a sin perspective, we do not have much worth. Go read Romans 3 if if you doubt me. Um, Our only worth before salvation is that we are image bearers of God. But that's also what makes sin so horrendous. That though we are image bearers of God, we would commit so much evil in the world toward God, toward each other, and even to ourselves. 
Likewise, when we consider it, worth can be different in different cultures. The American culture, for example, will give great worth to those who are rich or those who have celebrity appeal. One needs to look no further than our current presidential election campaigns to see how this is the case. If we look away from our own culture, we can see, look at other cultures too. Some cultures give worth to pedigree. That is, worth can be established based on one's genealogy or even how one looks. We saw this during the time of the monarchy, when being related to a king or a queen had worth within the society. Or if we look at the Nazi regime and how they emphasized a certain look, blonde hair, blue eyes. In such cultures, these individuals had worth. I guess the question we may be asking is, how do we define worth? Despite what some may think, the church does generate its own culture. It has a different way of looking at the world than the general culture does, or at least it should. So how in the church do we define worth? To be honest, I do think that this is an interesting question, especially for the American church to look at. Oftentimes we can be easily swayed by certain beliefs because we have the wrong sense of worth. Consider the super successful pastor who was the pastor of a huge megachurch. You know, Joel Osteen. He writes books, he is on TV, and people eat it up because they see a form of success and see that as him having worth. Unfortunately, for many, such success does not mean that one is in the will of God or preaching the gospel according to the scriptures. Another place that this is found in those evangelists. You know, the ones who say, if you contribute X amount of money to my ministry, then God will bless you. Why do people fall for this? Because they see this supposedly successful individual and assume that because they are successful, that God must be with them. Therefore, they give their finances to this ministry, believing that God will really bless them and give worth to this individual because of their claims. One final place we can see this is in education. We tend to give worth to those who have been educated. Because this individual has a doctorate, they therefore must know what they are talking about. Therefore, we equate their intelligence with worth. The more intelligent one is, the more esteem they deserve. Now, in all these circum- instances, circumstances, worth is equated with some kind of success. But we also notice that these successes are foreign to the kind of success we find in the scriptures. In fact, we don't find anywhere in the scriptures that we should be giving individuals worth because of their fortune, their fame, or their educational background. Instead, we are to find worth in individuals based upon their relation to Christ. Have they repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ? If so, then that person has already great worth. But the worth does not originate from themselves, but from Christ. This does not mean that we do not thank God for his grace upon people, such as those who have been given wealth or those who have education. These things can certainly be used to glorify God. Instead, it means that this isn't where their true worth should be placed. Instead, their worth should be placed in their relation to Christ. Is Christ becoming more in their lives? Are they seeking to glorify God, not build a fan base, or use their gifts for their own goals? Are they seeking to live according to the scriptures, walking in step with the Spirit? 
These are the things which we look at. These are the things which give us our worth. And that is the more we give to Christ, the more we want to say, not I, but Christ, the more worth we have. Be encouraged to seek this kind of worth. Not a worth that says, look at me, look at my faith, look at my righteousness. But a worth that relies more and more on Jesus Christ. A worth that recognizes that apart from Jesus we have nothing. And apart from Christ, while we are made, in the image of, while we are made as image bearers of God, we find no worth. Give thanks knowing that Christ gives us our greatest worth as children of God Most High. This all leads us to the gospel. In all of these things, actually, we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through the gospel we find our greatest worth. It is through the gospel we find God's greatest providence. And it is through the gospel we find God's greatest redemption. It is the gospel which all of these things end up pointing to. The gospel we find meaning for all of these things. The gospel begins with our origins. God created the cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all creation, he created humanity to be his image bearers. It is because of this we share attributes with God, though not infinitely. Because God is a God of love, reason, he knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows hesed, we can as well. It is here we find that there is sanctity and dignity to human life. Yet, like God... We are also able to choose. We could choose obedience and follow God into life or disobedience and follow sin into death. Humanity made the latter choice and has made that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is through our sin that we accrue a greater moral guilt before our holy and just God every day. And that makes us worthy of judgment. God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, he sent his light and his word into the world, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through him we are healed of our wounds. It is through him we find redemption from our sin and from the righteousness of judgment of God. Christ, by his propitiation, expiates our sins so that they're no more. His victory over death becomes our victory over death, and we are given his spirit, which guides our steps. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from sin and turn to God. We are to live a lifestyle which glorifies God. We can know this lifestyle through the revelation of the scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In this way, we show evidence of the victory of Christ in us. The second is faith in Christ. We are to rely only upon Christ for our salvation. It is not what we are able to do, but what Christ has done which saves us. No matter how good one is, we recognize our utter dependence upon the Son of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their deeds because they will find even their greatest deeds are tainted by sin. So any who goes before the judge will find that they are worthy of all condemnation and will face wrath for their sins. For those who are obedient, 
There is no longer judgment. Instead, we stand before God as his children. Our deeds are not counted against us, but instead we are credited with all righteousness through Christ. For those who are obedient, they will inherit an eternal kingdom, while they will experience the love of God forevermore. As we, have, as we leave here today, let us always remember the victory of Christ. Let us not forget that the story of Ruth is heading somewhere by God's providence, and that by his providence, healing occurs and redemption is found. Be blessed knowing that if you are in Christ, you have your own redemption through the blood of Jesus, and that through Christ we find our greatest worth as children of God. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your scriptures, and as we consider the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, let us always remember that without you, without your providence, all of this would be nothing. But as it is, you are here. You are with us. You have redeemed us. You have done it by your will. And we are ever thankful by all that you have done. And so, Lord, we ask that this be what you remind us of every day. Let this be the focus of our lives that we would give all things over to you, all of our lives over to you, to glorify you in worship and in praise. We thank you. In your son's name, amen.